Good evening, everyone. Let's see. Um, it's interesting to think about what is it that keeps a whole bunch of, let me turn that down a little bit, please, keeps a whole bunch of strangers working together? What keeps a culture together? What keeps people doing something in harmony? And one of the things is we have a common belief, we have common um, stories, we have a social construct, and we have all those little green things, pieces of paper that have absolutely no meaning in themselves, and yet we have a story about them. And because of that story, we have developed a utility so we could exchange a dollar for other kinds of consumable goods. Or <clears throat> The U.S. government has, is not a real thing. You, know, you could take all the buildings away, and there would still be a government. You could take the people away, and there would just be some new people. You could take, um, uh, if you dissolve the Constitution, though, which is what, a piece of paper? You dissolve that legal system, what happens to the government? <clears throat> Things are real in some ways according to the stories, according to the common belief that we give them. So, you know, there is no such thing as a Democratic Party. There is no such thing as a Republican Party. There's a common belief that people come together and think, okay, these are my, I, I believe this or that, I have this particular story about how the world works, and I'm going to buy that story. It's just a story. There's no objective reality, no biological reality to it. Not good, not bad, it just happens to be the way things are. In Buddhism, we have a particular story about how things uh, began, <coughs> how Dharma began. And the story, like other stories, can become extremely powerful. So the United States government is a very powerful entity because we have this coming together, and in that coming together, it creates a certain kind of power, a certain kind of force. This Sangha is, you know, has no objective reality. And yet, when we come together as, as people, then there is something that happens in that coming together. So it's the coming together that is so vital. Well, in Buddhism, we start off with the, 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 the traditional archetypal story of the Buddha's, uh, Buddha's path, Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha lived about 2,500 years ago, small, small little territory up in uh, northern India, Nepal, somewhere in that area. And the traditional story is that the Buddha was a <coughs> son of a wealthy uh, warlord, land baron, you know, kind of a minor nobility type person. But it was somebody whose father really wanted to preserve him from the, the terrible struggle and challenges of the world. So when his son was young, the, the king decided to try to make his environment as healthy, as pure, as clean as, as possible. And so he made sure that there was nobody in the environment who was ill or who was dying or who was you know, defective in any way. 
And so the, the, the Buddha grew up in this kind of ideal environment. In a way, we can say the, that the story is one that many people have <clears throat> in different countries. If you grow up in a certain socioeconomic um, environment, you kind of feel that the world is sort of basically organized and healthy, and you feel like you know that sickness and old age are really pushed off into the distance. But as the, uh, the Buddha became older, as with all of us, and began feeling the, the reality of life in his own heart, and began looking around, thinking, what's out there? What is the, what's this world made of? What's this world about? So the traditional story is he, he left the palace, this, this beautiful environment that he had, and he went out <clears throat> the first time, and he saw an old person. Now, you know, if you're used to young, vital people all the time, just imagine you've only seen advertising, you've only seen Playboy, you've only seen perfect bodies and beautiful skin, and suddenly you come out and see somebody who's old and decrepit, it's a bit of a shock to the system. Um, and he said, what's happening? This person's hobbling around, they can't see very well, they can't think as clearly, they're all stooped over with age, you know, and you know what's, what we can all get like when we get old, you don't have crumbs all down your, down your front, and you start drooling, and you know, you kind of walk into walls and things, you can't. But it can be a real shock when you realize that this particular vital, lively body that I have is not going to last. So that was the first kind of shock. He suddenly, suddenly hit him. Oh, my vital body is only temporary. I too will grow old. And then this word has it that he came out a second time. And this time he found, uh, he saw somebody who was being carried, um, wrapped up in bandages or something, who was sick, who was ill. He asked, People in the, what, what is this? What's going on here? He said, it's, he's ill. He's sick. He's, you know, he's lost control of his bowels. He can't speak clearly. He's sweating profusely. He's bleeding. He's covered with pox. He's whatever the case may be. He says, is that going to happen to me too? Yes, of course. We're all going to get sick. Nobody is exempt from getting sick. Nobody is exempt from getting old. And then the third time he goes out, he sees somebody, uh, a beer, a funeral procession. And he says, what's happened to this person? He's died. He's dead. Can't speak. No more responsiveness. Gone beyond. Disappeared from this world. So the traditional story at the founding of Buddhism is that this person who grew up in a very pristine very harmonious, very clean, spacious, healthy, vital environment, you know, full of, <clears throat> was well off, didn't have any financial challenges. Suddenly, the reality of the world, that we are going to get sick and get ill, or that we are going to get old, hopefully, get sick and die. Or we're going to get sick and then hopefully get old and die. 
hit him deeply. And so the, f the founding of Dharma is about that experience. The founding of Buddhism is about that experience, which everybody has at some point or other. Everybody has. They, they, they begin looking around and think, you know, I hope the internet will last while I'm alive. Somebody at, uh, at the monastery the other day <coughs> took a rifle and they shot one of the, the hubs for our fiber optic cable um, on the street. Uh, so we have the good fortune of uh, having some federal um, program that got high speed fiber optic uh, service to these rural areas. Well, a high speed fiber optic service has got 96 96 thread-like, she had hair about the size of a thick piece of hair, um, 96 of them, and they, they have to be able to pass light and impulses directly through. So when they shot this box, they shot through this container of 96 threads. I mean, these are really tiny threads, too. And so they, the, they, had to spend, they spent 15 hours trying to identify and splice all the threads in order to get our internet service back up. Well, as soon as they did that, our internet was completely down, and all of our phones were completely gone. We had the OIP phone system. <coughs> and suddenly, the monastery was bereft of these things that we had come to take as absolutely essential. Signed by registration, the people who call up, everybody wants to know what's going on. All, all are connected in some way through that system. And suddenly, we were completely bereft. What if everybody decided to start doing that? What if we didn't have, uh, what if, you know, the economic, uh, the company that supplies that service to us went bankrupt? They could no longer supply that service. What happens? So when we first hit and realize everything that we think we depend upon is impermanent, I mean, the internet could be gone just like that, you know? Big companies in the world become bankrupt. Governments have gone just like that. When it really hits us, it can be a bit of a shock. The world is not a safe place because it's all just changing and changing and changing. And I could be in a car accident. We were loading this morning some windows, and I was up on the, <coughs> the bed of our truck. and had a plastic sheet on it cover the windows, and I slipped. And fortunately, I caught myself, but I realized in that instant, sound off, my whole life, my wife thought everybody was dead. I mean, yeah. So this is what the foundation of Buddhism is based on, is ba based upon, you know, we, we go along um, with, with uh, a hope, we go along with a, a mind that is kind of looking at the world in a superficial way, and someday it hits us that these things that we thought were so much apart that we could really rely upon are impermanent. Our health, our body, you know, all the things of the world that we think are so impermanent. And if you have that, if it really hits you, then what do you do? Well, I was the Buddha's, you know, this is our typical story. That was the archetypal story. We had a, a member 
year, a couple, few years ago, who was hiking on Mount Hood. And they were hiking in the late, they were hiking in the spring, sometime I think in March sometime. And uh, they were up on the top with a group of people and a massive snowstorm came. And they all had to, they had to make a, a snow cave. Um, and they were kind of Sangha uh, suddenly realized how close her own death could be. I, I don't know if somebody died in that trip or not, but it certainly has happened. But she, she had a, a sense of the absolute fragility of life. Hit her deeply. Shocked her awake. So that's the, the traditional story of the Buddha. Is he, he encountered these three people, and he was shocked awake. Distressed, disturbed. You know? Who of us want to become old and decrepit? Who of us wants to become sick? Who of us wants to die? You know, none of us. And the next, the fourth time he goes out, he, he sees an ordained person. He sees a monk. A monk who is calm and serene. And he says, how can somebody be calm and serene in the face of this world? How can we be calm and serene in the face of the impermanence of this world? How can we be calm and serene <clears throat> in the face of our economic situation, our, our economic um, institutions? Might collapse at any time. Or that North Korea will decide to launch its bombs and Trump will launch his bombs and China will some equanimity? How can we find some peace if we are actually looking honestly at the nature of the world? So that's the official you know, kind of the spiritual myth foundation of, of Buddhism. But obviously, as I'm pointing out here, as I'm talking about it right now, it's, this is not about somebody else. This is not about some old guy, you know, 2,500 years ago. This is a an existential issue that every thinking, feeling, alive human being at some point faces. In a world where who knows who's going to be in the government, in a world where who knows what kind of disaster might happen, how can we find serenity, equanimity, clarity, loving kindness, and be effective in the world? So that's what the Dharma is about. We come here to meditate, and it's, you know, for in some way, it's a very lovely little refuge, a lovely place, it's green, it's rainy, it's peaceful. Uh, I certainly feel sometimes like I've had a day of just a thousand things kind of impinging upon me, and all, you know, people asking things and needing things and shortcomings and all that. You know, I come in here and think, oh, oh quiet, serene. Cool in the summer, warm in the winter. Hallelujah. And I get to take a little vacation. I was talking to somebody about taking a vacation. If we, if we go to, uh, I had the good fortune of stopping off in Iceland uh, on this last trip. And if you go to, a, if you take a vacation, one of the qualities of a good vacation is that you 
you let go of all the, the, the family burdens that you had back home, you stop thinking about politics, and you go and you just relax. You know, relax, look at the scenery, look at some museums, you know, eat some good meals. Uh, in Iceland, the nice thing what we did was they had these wonderful hot pools in the city of Reykjavik. And there are, <coughs> I don't know, six or eight of them. And because all of Iceland is heated by um, basically volcanoes, it's, like sitting, it's on sitting on top of a volcano, so they have hot water everywhere for free. So they make these public pools in the, in the city. And so there's the night that, one of the nights that we went, we were sitting in 38 degree um, water, 38 degree centigrade, 100 degree water, Fahrenheit water, and it was a big snowstorm. So we were outside, and there was lights, and the snow was coming down, and it was cold and windy, and we were sitting in 100-degree water. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a little that that kind of wonderful discrepancy was a, the epitome of a vacation. Absolutely no worries. Scintillating, bright, restful. <coughs> thing that actually makes it is our mind. So if we can actually learn to take short vacations, we come here into the Dharma Center, we come in here and we say, okay, I'm going to take a vacation for the next hour. I'm going to put all that stuff that I've been carrying all day long, I'm going to leave it at the door, come in here. That's a wonderful aspect of Dharma. You know, we can get refreshed from a vacation, go back out, and we have to still pay the bills. But that's one kind of practice, is that, that practice of taking a vacation and being refreshed. But the Dharma is about something even deeper than that. In the course of a crazy world, how can we find stability? In the course of a world that may be falling apart, how can we find stability? In the world that is threatening and scary, how can we find confidence? And so we come and the essential point is we look at the nature of mind. We look at the nature of mind. Now, the nature of mind has, according to one way of dividing it up, there are, there are six different consciousnesses. Okay. There's, we, we have the sensation of feeling, and there's, so there's the sensation, there's the awareness of the sensation. So we call that awareness of the sensation of feeling, the sensation of consciousness, the consciousness of sensation. We are able to see and to hear, and so there's both the physiologic action, and then there's the consciousness of that. So if somebody is under general anesthetic, anesthesia, I assume that their neural system is still intact. I assume that if they're poked and touched, that the neural system has some kind of reaction to it. I assume. <coughs> that if their eyes are open, maybe tracking something. But there may not be consciousness associated with it. So we talk about the, the six consciousnesses. There's a consciousness of taste, of touch, of smell, of sight, of sound. And there's a consciousness of thought. So when we can begin to look at the consciousness of thought, we realize, oh, there is such a thing, or there is such a thing as thinking, but I can be aware of thought. There is such a thing as seeing, but I can be aware of seeing. 
So awareness is larger than any of the consciousnesses. We have the ability to be conscious at any of those six levels. But we have the ability to be aware that we are conscious at any of those six levels. I am aware that I am talking. I can be aware that I'm hearing. I can be aware that our microphone kind of goes in and out erratically, and I can't figure out why it does that. When we begin to actually learn to pay attention to consciousness and awareness of consciousness, awareness is always stable, is always clear, is always bright, is always even. It is not born. It does not die. It is something that is inherent in each person. So one of the aspects of practice, one of the ways of finding some stability in this world is, first off, we have to have an interest in finding it. We have to have an interest in looking deeply. And that's what happened with the Buddha as he, he got really interested. He said, you know, this is what scared me. then began practicing. There's a simple story. He practiced in many different ways. He practiced under some really good teachers. He practiced by himself. He became an ascetic. He, uh, and then he eventually had a, an awakening experience. But we have to both be willing to have the shock about the nature of the world and our fragility in it, and then have the inquiry he says, I really want to find out. I really want to find out. And then we have the practice. What are the tools that will enable me to actually see? And then, of course, we have to be able to manifest it. So it doesn't... Um, So we not only have to have the, the awareness of reality, the curiosity about it, the practice of it, but we have to be able to manifest it in our lives. So that's, in a way, what Dharma is about. That's what Buddhism is about. That's what practice is about. Is how can we bring into our everyday life clarity, confidence, presence, a kind of open-heartedness, in the midst of this crazy world. So that particular approach is means the locus of control is, in a way, very much in your own heart and mind. The locus of control is not out there. It's not a matter of whether I'm uh, you know, who the government is or who's the president. It's a matter of how I am training my mind, what my mind is doing. I'm the only one who can actually open my heart I'm the only one who can think my thoughts. I'm the only one who has the ability to actually turn my attention one way or another, which is endlessly frustrating to the advertising industry, who is constantly trying to trap you into, into their agenda. But we actually have the ability to not follow their agenda. We actually have the ability. And in a way, that's why we can say that the, the Dharma, Buddhism, is a radical response. A radical response, a radical response, a radical social response, a radical social action in response to the craziness of the world, the world which is so habitual, which 
which just keeps trying to grab us all and get us, everybody's trying to get us to do what they want to do. Whereas in the Dharma, we try to have clarity and stability and confidence, and then we can look with the world and say, who do I want to join with? Who do I want to be a part of? What kind of projects of people do I really want from my heart out to support? We make conscious choices. A choice to support a sangha, there are many different, many different wonderful, wonderful things. But when we are making those choices out of fear and reactivity, we just end up fighting with everybody. Unfortunately, look at all the people who go into so many good organizations, and they just end up fighting with each other because they're in the organization out of reactive fear, instead of out of clarity. Instead of out of, I want to join this, with this group of people for this purpose, not out of protecting my own little nut. So, practice has many, many, many different levels on it. It has the level of that we're, we were talking about first, of just learning to take a vacation from our racing thoughts. It has the level of actually seeing the oneness of all things, that nobody is separate. All things are held at the same time. Time and space, past, present, and future, galaxies, the moon, the sun, the star, everything is held at one time to have that direct experience. And then to have the experience of opening the heart into this world the way it is, from the timeless, and doing whatever we can do to offer some clarity, to offer some peace, to offer some harmony, to offer some love to whatever group that we're connected with, whether it be our family, or government, or work, or whatever. And so when we can do that with a clear mind and an open heart, it makes a difference. And it's a, that's what I mean, it's a radical, radical thing to do because so many people in our culture are trying to be a benefit out of fear and anxiety and they're driven. So I encourage all of you to practice deeply. Find that clarity that's right here. Find the stability. Presence is calm, bright, open-hearted presence. And that's very different than being present full of murky, dark, confused anxiety. So that is possible for everybody to do. And, you know, easy to say, not so easy to do, but it does involve an ongoing practice. And it involves... In in order to keep practicing, we have to have relationships. We can't practice by ourselves. We're human beings. We're human beings who, who are, grew up in the last you know forty thousand years, in community. And so, if we want to have a, a long, a long deep practice, it means it has to be part of our relationships, with people. So, we all have great relationships with people based on open-hearted kindness and clarity of mind. Comments, questions, insights? Think I should, think I skipped.
Yes. Well, that's a great question, and it really is a matter of spiritual. Because what words do is they divide things. This is. So, on the level of words and understanding, that is nothing but the essence of duality, which is appropriate. But if you actually want to touch the place where past, present, and future all come together, where you see that all of the galaxies, all of the energy in the entire universe, all are held in one place, one awareness, then the first step to that is the mind has to be still. And then we have to be vividly aware with a completely still mind, vividly aware in the present moment. And then, you know, sometimes things open up and we begin to see some of the nature of reality that is beyond our constructive view. So, this is not philosophy. This is not philosophy. This is about <clears throat> what's vividly possible for somebody to taste directly. That's how you do it. But, you know, come to session. Come to more session. Yes.